Hello and welcome to Cloud 9.5. I'm so excited to have you guys here. Um, This is a very special episode, uh, mainly because I'm getting deeply personal. And for me, a lot of what is deeply personal is deeply painful. And so I actually recorded uh, the main piece of this about two days ago, and it's taken me that much time to kind of get my head around everything I've said because I haven't necessarily said them out loud um, before um, and in the context of what I'm, I'm talking about. So I do want to say rest in peace to Aretha Franklin. And a lot of people don't know, and especially she doesn't know, how much she has um, impacted me in my healing and sustainment of my life. And um, and that's what this episode is about. But also, I want to talk about uh, a few other things. So there's a poem that, that I wrote back in 2016 that relates to the issue associated with um, what I'm talking about with Aretha Franklin. And um, the creative process behind that is very, very amazing. Um, It's something that I had never experienced before because it had so much spiritual influence. And so I want to talk about that as well. So we're going to kick this off with the poem that kind of gives the background information into what I'm talking about with Aretha Franklin. Then we're going to go into Aretha Franklin, the song that inspired it, and some healing. Because by the time you get through all of that, honey, you're going to need some healing. So... (laughs) And then after that, we're going to talk about the, um, the creative spiritual process of it all. And um, I do hope that um, I can inspire other people to heal, let people know that they're not alone, and also um, help some people with their creative processes. So let's do this. Uh, Thank you for joining. And um, if you have any questions, you can always reach out. Uh, My email is listed on my listing for this podcast, wherever you're listening in. But if you need to reach me, it's Candace D. Henry on Twitter, on Instagram, and also on Facebook. So that's C-A-N-D-A-C-E-D-H-E-N-R-Y on all of that. So I really, really look forward to um, working with people, chatting with people, and my healing and your healing as well. Thank you. The information. I was staying up late when I got the information at a sleepover years before PlayStations after watching reruns of Mr. Ed. Turned the dial, sat back down, looked around, and got the information. My debriefing was everlasting. Children like me, different methods of teaching. I was never speaking, afraid to tell. So I passed on the information, but they already knew, told me what to do. A child's mind, now believing everybody, was tuned into the station. I almost forgot, years passed, my teacher gave me more information. A child still, seven years older, hormones on ten, consumed by this new dissertation. Resting with a scowl on my face, thoughts like scattering ants, unable to concentrate in actual school. My whole life forever changed from that first lesson. Confused from the start, going with the flow, guilt for playing my part, always told these lessons had to do with the heart. Older, sick of being taught and led, fought for my own sexuality instead, overexposing before they took my clothes off, always winning the draw, even if I never wanted it at all. All grown, no more teachers, staying protected from my peers, laughing at weak performances, some not in my league, inexperienced, they never got the childhood information. 
Had a change of heart, protecting it, not so easy to part. Here comes another debriefing. You aren't in control. Don't play me with that good girl role. I know who you are. You fucked my homie in his car. Daggers inside me, licking my wounds. Apparently keeping my legs closed wasn't safe. My sexuality is someone's to take. I never wanted that lesson. The first one, the second one, any of them, or the rape. I thought it was mine to share when I felt like it. I did my time, owned it. No one can fuck with it. It's mine. Death consumed me. If anyone can take it, what's the point of having a will? Will to live, will to give, will to love, always ready to die. I reached out for help, never explained myself, thought no one would believe me because I was too free, because I owned my sexuality, because I had the information. I kept to myself, stayed in my dorm, cared less about my hair, hygiene, and the norm. Equations collapsed and slithered off the paper, misguided essays, research out of touch, scattering ants, joined by termites, eating away at my life, unable to tell friend from foe, money was the only thing that made sense to me, until it didn't. Groups, medicine, and doctors, looking at us, old me, new me, sick me, denying the informed me, denying it ever happened, calling it a fucked up situation, a horrible sexual experience, never using the word rape, until it was seven years too late. I blamed my first teacher. Mixed emotions filled my mind's bleachers. Underneath them, a girl shivers by the cold haunting of her lessons, psychically screaming at her first teacher. I know who gave you the information. Someone taught you to pity and shame for all of you. Memories flash, tears fall, rocking back and forth, mourning the me before I knew. Swearing to protect my child from the information, always around those I trust. Five years old. Worked too far away, two to three hours of traffic, needing after school care. Picked her up, and to my disgust, a student gave her the information. The internet was his tactic, followed up by reenactments, groups even, after school care, no one caring, no one watching. The information changed her brain, stole her memories prior, locked itself away. She can't remember the good times, good people, or information received before her debriefing. In counseling, I thought she was faking, yelling for her to wake up, wanting to fix it, scrub her soul clean, being reminded that she is a person and not a machine. I remember all the fun times we had, her sister, the constant reminder, a new life, a reflection of what she used to be, confident and so sure, nothing could stop her, always wanted to learn and explore. Since then, insecure, unsure, second guessing, a shell of what she was before. I fought to be what I am today, a beacon of light with no qualms to slay, anyone or anything who disrupts our way. Conquering with or without blood, more than existing beyond the pain and emptiness, resisting the ease of being anything less, high above the thoughts and expectations of others, continuously discovering and being my true authentic self. I work with her every day to lift her up so that she may transcend negative ideas, doubts, and inconsistencies in love of herself, hoping she never knows what it feels like to want to end her life. Ever watching, always observing, wondering if those memories have crept in. Are they lurking? I am. I want to be there when she wakes from the forgetful slumber her mind created to keep her safe, just to console her, guide her, throw down my coat over puddles of shame, teaching the curriculum to avoid the messes I have made, sharing my mistakes, lessons from the side effects of information I have received. If I was given the information to one day save a life, 
especially the lives I've created. So be it. Hey, so Aretha Franklin's passing brought up a lot for me. And I think it's a in a way that most people would never guess. Um, back in early 2001, I was raped. And when it happened, it was just um, a very horrifying experience especially for someone like myself. Um, Due to the nature of me, you know, I've been very, um, proud of my sexuality and who I am and, and learning that part of me and knowing that part of me. And so for me to be that type of person, Um, proud of owning my own sexuality to one day have it taken from me was devastating to the point where I was like physically shaking like I couldn't keep my hands still afterward and I went through a lot and a lot of people who were around me at the time didn't know that it happened but they saw my decline They saw me, they saw my changes, they saw that. And as 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds, I don't think anybody was equipped to understand what I was going through. And I never told them. They just saw the after effects. But um, I did reach out to my parents. And um, I told them that I needed help. And I told them that I needed counseling. And um, I also told them I didn't want to be in school anymore. And I pretty much got yelled at. (laughs) And they told me that I had to stay in school and nobody has time to take me to counseling and um, what do you, you know, what do you want to come out for? It was just all negative. I said, I said, something's not right. And I remember this phone call. I remember exactly where I was standing. I was in my dorm and I was pacing between my dorm and the window of my dorm. And It was a sunny day and they just kept, you know, basically just pushing me down. (laughs) And I never got a chance to tell them what happened because if I can't tell you that something's wrong, then how can I tell you what is wrong or feel comfortable telling you that something that personal? Now let's go through the backstory of the situation. So at 15, I was living in Illinois 
and I was having a very, very, very hard time. Um, this is a, I was a student who was, you know, an AB student. I had been skipped a grade in math and English. Um, and my ninth grade year, things just went, took a turn. Now keep in mind, there's a lot of stuff going on that I'm not really gonna get into that year in my home life, my personal life, everything. And so it was just difficult. And at some point I got put into counseling. I remember why I got put into counseling. And once I was in counseling, the doctor said, she's depressed. Or the counselor said I was depressed. And uh, I went back a few more times. I wasn't put on medication or anything like that. But by the time we moved to Atlanta, none of that got picked back up. And so, and keep in mind the diagnosis between the time we, I got diagnosed and then moved to Atlanta, um, the diagnosis wasn't that far from the move. So when I moved, it was just kind of like, all right, fresh start, but those are still things that were bothering me. And as an adult, now I can look at some of the behaviors I had once I got there as like pacifying behaviors, um, you know, things that I was doing or interested in or seeking or like coping mechanisms for my own depression. And like I said, the counseling and all that wasn't picked back up, but I just went through. I maintained my, you know, AB status in school, but I just hated school. I didn't like dealing with people. Um, I never really quite fit in. And, um, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time and he's very manipulative and, you know, I guess you could call it mentally abusive. But as a 16 year old, 17 year old, I'm not able to see these things as what they are, especially when that's what, what you're used to at home. So anyway, being left untreated, getting back into school, into college, and then being raped really took whatever I had going on on a really majorly downward spiral. And so when dealing with this rape, I really dealt with it by myself. I kept that in. And I dealt with the after effects of it. You know, dealing with that, being such a person who felt like I owned my own sexuality and then being raped, it really made me feel like I hated men. I didn't hate them enough to be a lesbian. <laughs> uh, but I hated them. And I felt like they should pay to even be around me. That's the only thing that really made sense to me at the time. And so,
that began my transition into adult entertainment. Now, when I say I went through this alone, I really did go through this alone because I couldn't tell my friends. They weren't mature enough, but the things that I did tell them, they exploited and um, used for their own entertainment and drama. Then, you know, I would just be me in my dorm room alone crying. Playing music and just crying. I barely studied at all. I would go to class. If I went out, I might go to the club with my friends or something, but it's usually an opportunity to play pretend, to get dressed up, to get dolled up, and just pretend like everything's okay. To drink and pretend. But in reality, the there was a song that featured like Aretha Franklin and Lauren Hill called A Rose is Still a Rose. And I would lay in my bed and just hold myself. I put my arms around myself and listen to that song over and over and over. And if it wasn't for that song, (laughs) I don't even know. I mean, it wasn't like it healed me completely, but it helped me make it through. There are other songs that I can talk about at another time, but you know. This is about Aretha Franklin because she just passed. And um, her passing just brought up a lot for me because it brought me back to that song. And I haven't even played it. I haven't even pressed play on anything to listen to it because I can hear it very clearly in my head. I don't need to listen to it outside of my head. But it helped me through. And it wasn't, when I say it didn't heal me, it's because it couldn't heal me. I needed a lot more. (sighs) And um, eventually, between my previous depression and then the rape, I went on... um, Everything just kind of spiraled out, and so that rape happened in January, and by September, I had such a difficult time mentally that um, I had checked myself in to a mental hospital. And the funny thing about it is I, I was basically like, 
I'm such a researcher, so. <laughs> um, thank God for the internet was what it was at the time, and that I had a computer to figure these things out, but my mind was racing. I mean, all through school, I didn't do well in school that semester because of what was going on with me mentally, because like I said, I was a good student, and then all of a sudden, I wasn't. And so and then when I wasn't, that was depressing even in itself. And so it's when I say not a good student, it's like I'm, I'm a writer through and through. And to write an essay, to see the look of my teacher's face when she knows what I'm capable of, but I couldn't write an essay. One of my favorite topics, which is serial killers. <laughs> I wrote an article on Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, an essay on Jeffrey Dahmer and missed the mark. It wasn't that it wasn't good, but it didn't fit the guidelines of what I was supposed to be doing. And I could step outside of myself and see that that wasn't right, that I was wrong with it. My math equations, I could not fit them together. Everything was just like it was swirling on the paper. My mind was racing all the time. I had about four to five different racing topics going on in my head at once. And these are times when, when I know that I'm depressed, I can't smoke weed, or at least certain strains, because um, it seems to make my mind race a lot further, and it doesn't help. And usually what I have to do is just go lay down and try to sleep to reset everything. But even without weed, when it gets like this, it's bad. When I stop wanting to comb my hair, when I don't care how I look, when people that I know have to tell me, girl, why are you leaving the house looking like this? And I'm essentially a prissy chick. But these are the things that go on when someone's depressed. When my room is not clean, when my... <clears throat> When I just stop caring about certain things that I usually care about. And so when people say, you know, someone's room is a reflection of their mind, that's real. Very, very, very real. Even little bitty things like toilet paper rolls. If you see someone with a collection of toilet paper rolls that they haven't quite thrown away, that is a sign of trouble. A deep depression, something is not right because the toilet paper roll should be thrown away. But if they have a collection of them, if they can't manage to change the roll, that's a problem. So even now, if I see a roll of empty roll of toilet paper and then a roll of toilet paper, it freaks me out because I don't, that's a sign that there's trouble to come in a depression, in a depressed state. With whoever's bathroom it is. <clears throat> So anyway, um, the song of Aretha Franklin's passing in the song, it brings up a lot for me because it brings up a time in my life where I was alone and I didn't have anybody to turn to. And the people that I thought I could turn to were not there for me. I don't know what their motives were. I can't speak to that. But... I appreciate Raven Franklin for what 
she did for the world, but also what she did for me personally. Because if I had not had that song, I don't know that I would have lived to check myself in to the mental hospital. And on another day, I'll tell you about that experience, about what it was like to um, check myself in. At 19 years old, and what that process was like, and how I feel about that. So we'll do that another day, but for right now, um, I appreciate, and I appreciate her then, I appreciate her now for holding me. It was like an audio hold, like someone holding me, but through sound. And I needed that so bad because there was nobody there to hold me when I needed it the most. So look for the signs of depression in people around you. If you have the capacity to help them, help them. If you have the capacity to protect them against people who will judge them, protect them. If you know of someone who has been raped and you have the capacity to support them, support them. Meaning just listen or just hold space, just sit still and let them know that you're there because it's deeper than calling the police. It's deeper than taking them to the hospital. So much bigger than that because there's things that you carry around with you that affect your self-worth and your value and your purpose. And, you know, you wonder why you even breathe. It's almost like a death. Like the way you would treat somebody who is grieving. You don't just attend the funeral, give them flowers, and then just walk away. People need to be checked on. To know that they're okay. Because... If left alone, your mind can work against you. Not for you. And, like I said, appreciate Aretha Franklin for being a part of that song, for helping me for audio holding me, 
and I love you all and I wish you healing. In uh, January 2016, I made a resolution to myself that I would write a book or publish a book in the year of 2016. And I didn't have any context of how or why or whatever, but I just knew it needed to happen. I said I was going to do it, and it, it actually happened. Um, it was published in October of 2016. And so um, there are some key I mean, things that were already in place. One, I had a ton of poems that I'd already written, probably starting from 2010, and just kind of held on to. Um, I use Google Drive and Google Keep for my writing processes. Also, I had a, an app I used called Journey uh, for journaling. Um, plus I had journals around the house that I just kind of found poems and pulled from there. And I still have way more on all mediums <laughs> that I haven't published, um, yet. And I may be, may publish in the future, but anyway, um, I had all this, but I wasn't doing anything with it. Well, a series of unfortunate events in relation to police murders happened. And I wrote a poem called dying in my timeline. So this is referring to Alton Sterling and Ronnie Shumpert. So those two um, two incidents happened and inspired me to write Dying in My Timeline. So I wrote Dying in My Timeline, then I wrote an article on it, and then, you know, um, after that, the Philando Castile, once I published the article, I sent it, the article to my friend Raheem Shabazz, and he said, well, this is great work, but guess what just happened? And then he sent me the Philando Castillo video and it just like crushed me. And then I released an update to my blog post and that's that. And so once I released that poem, Dying in My Timeline, I got a, a lot of great feedback. And keep in mind, all the poems that I wrote before, I hadn't shared outside of a friend over a blunt or some wine. And um, so being able to publish it and it be so well received, was mind blowing to me um, because the reason what I wanted people to see in that poem, and this is one of the few poems that I, that I write for a specific purpose. I wanted people to feel um, what, what they're feeling, like what's really going on. And I think that's one of my gifts is getting people to feel, but I really needed people to feel what's going on. Like we are watching murders. We are watching families grieve over murders. We are watching people kill people, go to court and get off. Like these are real things that are happening. Let's just let's just analyze that real quick. And that's what came of the poem dying in my timeline. I got people from all over the world reaching out to me about this. And I said, you know what, Candace? Now keep in mind this was around June. I said, hey Candace, it's time. I think this is time for you to write your book. And so that poem was what made me decide to pull all my poems together and write. Now, the poem started from 2010, but keep in mind, um, 2015, 2016, prior to the Dying My Timeline poems were very, very, very serious uh, writing times for me because I was really going through a lot and a lot in my, um, a lot in my love life. So a lot of those poems, as you'll see in there, are, are more recent. Um, and then, so once I started putting the poems together, you know, just getting everything together, then I organized them. So, you know, five chapters, each of them has a specific um, 
purpose or theme. And um, I was ready to go. I had a, an excellent piece of software that I used to write the, um, to put the poems together to create this book, to get everything published. And um, I, I'll basically, I'll recommend it. I'll make sure I put it in the blog post uh, for you guys to get a link to it, to catch it. So look for this, <laughs> uh, check for this on Medium. Because uh, that's where I'm going to publish this blog post associated with this um, podcast. But anyway, um, so I had everything together and I had the concept for the cover. And so, yes, I can draw and paint, but those aren't my strong suits. Um, gosh, um, was. And gosh, and I. Um, partnered on a lot of creative works, um, my creative works, um, more so than his. I think with me helping him, it was more along the lines of um, the corporate side of things, um, the operations level work and like ideas and things. But for him, he helps me with ideas, but also um, creativity. Like he's very strong in visual arts, also audio arts, video, everything. So anyway, but I really, really at the time wanted to do this by myself. I wanted to create this cover alone. I had the concept and I was plotting it out. But the funny thing about plotting it out is every time I tried to plot it out, words would write and I still have this paper to this day this um, book um, draft book that I have where I pretty much my staging area before I turn something into a painting and so every time I would try to draw words would come and it, and I start to feel this very intense feeling over me um, and I couldn't understand it but what it was, was my, um, it was my spirit coming through, um, at the time. And it's as if something took over and that is what was going on with me and the, the words coming out instead of the actual drawing. And so every time I would go to write, I would just go to draw, I would be writing words and the words would keep coming. And I'd be like, I don't want to do this because I knew what was going to come. I could feel it. And so this is how the poem, the information came about. Um, the information was a very intense process for me getting that written because it was really literally two days of writing and crying. I probably could have gotten that poem done in a day, maybe half a day, but you got to understand having these issues that I had with my own molestation, my rape that I experienced, um, being a mother experiencing, you know, watching what my child went through, all those things are separate incidents, but they're still all connected because they're connected to me. And so having never, I never really sat down and dealt with all of that. 
And that poem was me dealing with all of that. And it was very, very, very difficult because you're dealing with yourself as a child, yourself as a young adult, yourself as a mother, caring for a child all through some sort of trauma. And it was very difficult. So going through the motions and writing this poem, it really felt like, one, I was very, very spiritually led through this process. I believe creativity is a spiritual process. I believe it is our connection to the spiritual world on high levels and low levels, depending on how you're looking at it. Um, But I feel like this was, you know, spirit pushing me to say, no, 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 honey. You have to deal with this. You have to get through this. And I have to tell you, it was very hard. Very, very hard. So hard that... I feel like putting that poem together, I can't say writing the book because I was just fine after I wrote the book, after I had all the everything in place, everything plotted out, you know, all my independent author stuff done, all that stuff done, I was good. But once I wrote this poem, it literally threw me into a depression. And so, you know, everybody's so excited about me writing this book, everybody's so happy. But when it came time for me to promote this book, I couldn't. Go and speak about the book, mm -mm. Go send the book to different people's emails, I couldn't because I was still mourning my experiences. And so I never gave myself that chance, even um, if you look at all the experiences individually, I never gave myself a chance to mourn them, I just kept going. When you're a kid and you're going through something, how how do you process that without counseling? unless you just know how to do it. But I didn't know. Being raped and not saying what it was, not telling anybody that that's what happened for seven years. The only time I spoke about my rape, or actually, I never, like I said I, in the poem, I never, I just said it was a bad experience. I never called it a rape. But it took for, gosh, me having a conversation with him about this horrible experience and how it changed me and how much, it, how it it turned me in a, into a certain way that I'll, I'll never be able to go back to. And he's, you know, like, you just described a rape. That's what he said to me. You just described a rape. And I was just like, no, because for me, being being able to say that I had been raped was almost like saying that I lost something. I couldn't bear the thought of um, losing it's sex but that's what happened it wasn't sex <laughs> because for me sex was like a power and then today I have that power back but to me that's what it was it was a source of power for me but for someone to take it away it just felt like I didn't know what I didn't know what was going on anymore And so for me to be the strong woman that I thought I was at the time, to be raped, I just felt like that's not me. And so the power that I thought I had turned into hyperdrive and just uh, it got very twisted. 
But anyway, I never allowed myself to mourn my rape. Um, what happened to my daughter, that hurt a lot. It hurt to, to watch her go through that. It hurt to watch her go through the different phases of that and just listen to it. And that's the main thing I had to do was listen to her. I wanted to be there to listen to her because I didn't want her to feel alone. So I listened to everything she said all the time. And sometimes the things that she say about what happened would come from so many different angles. And I knew it was all part of her healing process, but oh my God. And it's like once she said everything, it's like she forgot it. So when I did put her in counseling, she forgot everything. And I just was wanting the counseling to really help. But by the time I put her in counseling, she was just like, I don't remember anything. I don't know what you're talking about. And it was the strangest thing. And so that's what, um, what I was talking about in the poem, the information about how, you know, it's like she just went to sleep. Her mind just kind of protected her. And I just, I just wanted to be that person to protect her, but I didn't, I was working and in traffic. So I wasn't able to protect her. And so in hindsight, her body and her mind came in, but at the same time, the reality of it is, will, it, will she wake up to this one day? Most likely, yeah, because her mother's a writer and has a podcast talking about it right now. But, <laughs> you know, even still, I realized that even with myself, I did not allow myself to heal from that because it hurt me too. I was more worried about what's going on with her and that she's mentally okay. But in reality, you know, her self-esteem was affected. You know, she's mentally okay. She's functioning and things like that. But, you know, like I said in the poem, her sister is a reflection of what she used to be. She used to be like that. She used to be more outgoing and more friendly and, you know, confident. And after that, she wasn't anymore. And so... When you sit back and you look at it, it still hurts because you know what your baby used to be and she's not the same anymore. And so just imagine writing about all these things at one time and having to just go through it. And it was just, it was hard. So being able to be, and now I'm an author, I'm a published author, I've got a book. People are like, oh, you're published now. How do you feel? And I'm like, shit, I'm just trying to deal with the shit I wrote about. <laughs> I'm really just trying to make make it through. I'm really just trying to, like, recover. And so it took months for me to even read one poem. I did one reading, and I didn't invite any of my friends or my family. I just went to uh, a poetry reading in uh, downtown Atlanta on Peachtree Street at a coffee shop down there um, over by the old Macy's. And uh, I got up and I read two poems. I read um, The Listener and Like Me. And it was just such a relief to do that. And when I did it, it felt... Uh, like a big weight had been lifted off my chest. And I literally walked outside on a Peachtree Street and cried. 
And I like bawled all the way walking down Peachtree Street to the bus station. I mean, excuse me, to the train station. And it wasn't like, I'm sad. It was more like, oh my God, I finally did it. Have I done another reading since then? No. Would I? Yes. Um, I think I'm a lot better now that where I, if I was really ready to promote the book, I could promote the book. I could go out and do more discussions on the information, on the listener, on any of the books, on the, the chapters that I've written, any of the poems I've written, um, and feel good about it. But at the time after I wrote it, no, I couldn't. And a lot of people couldn't understand. And I could only do so much through motion and knowledge of what I knew. But emotionally, I was not ready. And I literally was in a serious depression for a long time after that. And I just needed to recover. And so I think everyone um, for being so supportive of me through the process, all my friends and all my family who who knew what was going on and the ones who didn't know what was going on, who just happened to be compassionate people. Some people, you don't need to tell them what's going on. They're just automatically compassionate and they give a fuck about you. Some people, they need act like they need to know before they can help you. And those, no, that's not always the case. Sometimes you just can't tell people stuff. But anyway, um, I'm ready to write another book. Um, I've written a lot more poems since then. I've been through a lot more since then. Um, but as far as the information is concerned, I have not released it like on paper just yet. I haven't put it, published it anywhere. Um, I've read it on another podcast, but this is the first time for my podcast and I'm, I'm ready to move forward. So with regards to the writing process, it's not all just pen to paper. It's not all typing. It's an emotional, emotional process. And just like any creative process. And I salute anybody who is able to go through it and then release it. Because going through it is one thing. Releasing it is another thing. And then promoting it is a whole other thing. Like, do you have the mental and emotional strength to actually stand and talk about your product and say what needs to be said and express it. I didn't have it when I was done. I honestly didn't have it. Um, I wasn't ready and I'm okay with that. I had a lot of guilt about that, but now I'm like, no, I guess it wasn't time yet. And I'm a lot stronger now and I can talk about it. And yes, I cried through this talk and Aretha Franklin talk on this podcast, but that's okay. I'm ready to move forward. So if you guys have any questions or you want to talk, Candace D. Henry on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, C-A-N-D-A-C-E-D-H-E-N-R-Y. And I hope that you are comfortable enough with yourself to allow yourself to write, to allow the spirit to move through you, to help you write. Because... I did need to get that off of me because it's something I've been carrying around for most of my life, pieces and pieces of it most of my life. Some of it, you know, longer, some of it shorter, but I'm I'm ready to move forward and heal. And that's the purpose of what I do is to help people heal, but also I gotta help myself and make myself heal. So join me in 
healing. Thanks for being high on cloud 9.5.